Greetings, listeners, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Encounters with Dignity, a podcast on restorative justice hosted by Catholic Mobilizing Network. I'm your host, Caitlin Morneau, and it is good to be with you. On Encounters with Dignity, we lift up the voices and stories of people who are living restorative justice. One of the most important ways to do this is by hearing from those who have been through a restorative process themselves. If you're joining us for the first time, restorative justice is an approach to crime and harm that seeks healing rather than vengeance. When people and relationships are violated, restorative justice upholds human dignity, rebuilds relationships, and transforms lives and systems. Restorative practices include those impacted by the harm in voluntary processes aimed to address needs, build understanding, and make amends to move forward in the spirit of right relationship. In this episode, we bear witness to the story of two families whose faith, forgiveness, and courage enabled them to say yes to such an encounter. Let me tell you a little bit about the voices you're about to hear. In March 2010, Anne Gromare was shot and killed by her fiance, Connor McBride. Anne's parents, Kate and Deacon Andy, were moved by their Catholic faith to forgive Connor. Then, together with Connor's parents, Julie and Michael, they advocated for a restorative circle process, which would shape Connor's plea in sentencing. They were led through this encounter by Sujatha Balaga, 2019 MacArthur Fellow and the former director of Impact Justice's Restorative Justice Project, who will join them in sharing this story today. In 2016, Kate Gromer published her book, Forgiving My Daughter's Killer, a true story of loss, faith, and unexpected grace. In the years since Anne's death, all five of these individuals, along with Connor, have generously shared their experience, and it has been a great blessing and honor of mine to get to know each one. As you listen to their testimonies, consider a time when you have offered or received forgiveness. What did it feel like? What made it possible? How do you see the relationship between truth, mercy, justice, and peace? What does their story reveal to you about the needs for healing that go unmet by our criminal legal system? Let's listen. This is Kate Gromer, and I'm going to begin the story. That particular Sunday was Palm Sunday that year. So Andy and I, after church that morning, were both out in the garden and we came in pretty hot and sweaty. So we were both uh, cleaning up when the doorbell rang. On the other side of the door was a deputy sheriff from the Leon County Sheriff's Office and a woman who identified herself as the victim's advocate for the Leon County Sheriff's Office. They asked if we were Ann's parents and if they could come in and talk to us. It was then that they told us that Anne had been shot. I, I honestly couldn't wrap my mind around that. And I remembered that she was supposed to be with Connor, um, her fiance. And so I asked, was she with Connor McBride? And it was the deputy sheriff who told us that it was Connor who had shot Anne. 
again, it was just a fact that I couldn't wrap my mind around. Well, the sheriff's office said they were there to bring us safely to the hospital. I said, we need to pray. And we prayed for Anne and the people taking care of her. But we also prayed for Connor because we knew that wherever he was, he needed our prayers as well. We went to the hospital and everything was so confusing. And the doctor said she was in grave condition. He also said it was a miracle that she was alive. I, I couldn't see the miracle. Anne and Connor had gotten into an argument and Connor had taken the shotgun and had threatened to kill himself, but in the ensuing argument had shot Anne instead. As the week progressed, it was clear that Anne would not survive her injuries. And so we made the decision to take her off life support on Friday. Now, if you remember, this happened on Sunday, Palm Sunday. And so Friday was Good Friday. So the night before, the McBrides had told us that Connor had put me on uh, his waiting list to see him in the Leon County Jail. I, I wasn't sure why he did that. And I'm not sure why I decided to go, except I have this thing about attendance. And I thought, well, if I'm one of the few people that can go see him, I should go see him. And I asked Andy on Thursday night what he wanted me to tell Connor. And he told me, he said, tell Connor I love him and I forgive him. Now, we had spent a lot of time together that week, uh, but neither of us had spoken to one another about our thoughts on forgiveness. Um, Andy had quite uh, a remarkable experience where he felt that both Anne and Jesus were asking him to forgive Connor. For me, it was more of a remembering of everything I had learned in the healing prayer ministry and how so often forgiveness brings freedom to the forgiver. So I knew I would have to forgive Connor. Michael? I went to Tallahassee Memorial and up to intensive care. The hall and waiting room were packed. Kate and Andy Gromare were across a sea of people. I felt like a cartoon character shrinking in a place I did not belong. I remember standing against the wall, uh, breathing deeply to try to stem the nausea when a lady walked up to me and said, are you Connor's dad? You look just like him. It turned out that that was Connor's supervisor and I subsequently found out she went over to Andy and specifically said, there is someone to see you. Andy Gromere made his way across the crowd and hugged me and said something I will never forget. He said, thank you for being here, but please don't be offended if I hate you by the end of the week. All I could say was, I'm so sorry. After some conversation I was in too much shock to hear, I was introduced to Father Michael Foley from Good Shepherd Catholic Church here in Tallahassee. And he prayed for us, not just for Ann Gromare, but for Connor McBride, not just for the Gromares, but all the families impacted by this tragedy. It was a consummate sign of love and mercy from the community that the McBride family would encounter along this journey. We began Wednesday of that week, finding out how to tread water in the judicial system. We learned how much it would cost to hire a lawyer for Connor 
as uh, to do what was described to us as mitigate down from a life sentence. This was also the first day that Connor was out of suicide watch at the Leon County Jail, and we were allowed to visit him. One at a time, behind plexiglass, over a greasy phone, we talked to a haggard and scared boy who could only ask us how Anne was. He had just found out that she had not immediately died after getting released from suicide watch. We didn't know what to say to him, except that we were and always would be there for him, no matter what was to come. So it's now um, Friday morning, good Friday morning. And uh, at 9 a.m. I headed for the Leon County Jail. We were gonna take Ann off life support once I got to the hospital. And quite honestly, I went to the jail because I didn't wanna be the one to tell Connor that Ann had died. Um, I went up to the desk and handed them my driver's license and told them I was there to see Connor McBride. And she looked at the license, she looked at me, she looked at the license, she looked at me and she said, can you, she said, are you the victim's mother? And I said, yes. And she said, can you stand over here? And I said, yes. <laughs> and um, a, a little while later, a uniformed officer came up and she said, you're on his list, you have your ID, uh, so we're gonna let you go up, but don't pound on the glass. And I said, I'm not here. I'm not here to pound on the glass. So I walked down the hallway and quite honestly, being that it was Good Friday, I couldn't help but think about Jesus and uh, where he had spent the previous night himself. I, I didn't know why. I, you know, why am I visiting Connor and thinking about Jesus? But, but that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, was he alone? Did it, was anybody allowed to visit him when he was in jail? So I went up and as Julie said, there's plexiglass and a phone and a, a little plastic bucket seat. And I sat down and waited. And soon I saw Connor uh, coming down the hallway. And when he sat down, he was already crying. And he said, I'm so, so, so sorry. And I said, I said, Connor, Mr. Gromer wants me to tell you that he loves you and he forgives you. And I said, Connor, you know I love you and I forgive you. And when I said those words, I meant it. And I have never had to take them back. I've reflected on it in those times that are very difficult, the holidays and when one of our other daughters got married and Anne wasn't there to celebrate with us. But I come back to the fact that I have forgiven Connor and the, the peace that comes with that comes to me even in the midst of my grief. Andy. So we love and forgive Connor, but is that all? Is that all we had to do? Uh, maybe, but I felt compelled and we felt compelled to do something else. I'd always heard that prison was a terrible place. And so outside of Tallahassee, we have a faith-based uh, character prison. I thought if there was any place, if there was supposed to be a nicer prison, maybe this was it. So I started asking around about how we could help Connor uh, be located in a faith-based prison. Um, and they told me that I should talk to a man named Allison DeFore. And we, I reached out to him and contacted him. And I was telling him about the story, about what happened. 
And I told him that I was looking for uh, some way to get Connor into the faith-based prison. And he, he looked right at me and said, Andy, what are you doing? Uh, all you Catholics do restorative justice. Why aren't you doing that? Now, at the time, I was in formation to be a, a, a deacon in the Catholic Church, and I had no idea what restorative justice was. Uh, it kind of stung me a little bit that supposedly all Catholics know about it. <laughs> and um, But I, he, like any good thing, he said, Google it. And so I went home and Googled it. I thought this was a great idea. And I started doing some research on it. I even wrote a paper for a class on it. Uh, I, I talked to Kate about it, and she was all uh, uh, eager to do it. Uh, and Michael, I talked to Michael, and he was uh, eager to do that too. Because it gave a chance for us as, as people that were involved a chance to speak instead of victims in this process. So uh, like anything, I reached out to some places and honestly, I didn't get a response. I was looking for someone who could help all of us. And a colleague's daughter-in-law had attended Eastern Mennonite University and she encouraged me to contact Howard Zier. Howard Zier is known as the grandfather of restorative justice. So I reached out to him and caught him returning home from Germany. And he was thoughtful and he was kind. And he said he would contact two restorative justice lawyers he knew. And I received a call from Sujatha Balaga of Oakland, California. She was calling, I later discovered, to tell me gently that this would never happen that it had never been done before in a murder case and certainly not in a state as punitive as Florida. I mentioned that the fathers, Michael and Andy, were having lunch each week and she said, wait, they're talking? And I said, yes. She said she would agree to talk with Kate and Andy. She said, if they call me and agree to a circle, I will let you know. I called Kate. She immediately called Sujata. The restorative justice process circle was started with Sujatha agreeing to be the facilitator. One of the key things about the circle was, you know, you can kind of, we set some things out in the, in the middle to show, to represent Anne's life and everything. And we, uh, and one of the things that we asked is uh, Connor not to be shackled when he came in. And so when he came in, he was not shackled. And for the first time in the, in the 14 months that it occurred since his arrest, he got to hug his parents. And to me, that was, that's really quite a wonderful thing about restorative justice. It's just these human touches that we all crave. He was allowed to, uh, to do that. And so the circle started with the state attorney reading the charges. And then it came to uh, Kate and I, and, and we talked about who Ann was and how important it was to her. Um, after that, um, Connor had his chance to speak. And um, he has told us since then that speaking to us about what happened to Ann, Ann's life that night uh, was the hardest thing he's ever encountered, harder than anything he's ever encountered in prison. So when people say that restorative justice is soft on crime, Connor McBride says absolutely not. It's the worst thing he ever had to do was speak to the victim's parents. After we just talked about how important Ann was to our lives. Uh, afterwards, it was very hard listening to what happened because that was one of the things I wanted out of the restorative justice circle. I wanted to hear what happened because as a father, I, I feel like I'm a protector of my daughter and I want to know what happened to her. And so he told us, and it was very difficult. Uh, people say that in poems and stuff, your heart breaks, but I can tell you that day that my heart physically felt like it was breaking because it was just senseless. 
It was just two people who argued and just couldn't stop. And eventually they let their emotions just run, run completely the gamut and didn't know how to stop it. And Connor told us that he shot her just because he wanted to have it stop. And it's just, uh, it just made no sense. Kate was much smarter. She knew that there wasn't going to be any sense out of this. But she was hoping for a meaningful uh, sentence in this. And she also was hoping for meaningful actions by Connor afterwards. Like she wanted him to speak out about the issues that he faced, uh, about violence and relationships. He wanted him to be involved in anger management to control the anger that he felt. He also wanted him to volunteer where Anne would have volunteered, some of the activities that she was. And that Connor really took that to heart because he said that Connor asked Kate sometimes that, what can I do to make, to, to live these two lives uh, and to make up somewhat for the one that I took? Just to emphasize that for me, it was about participating in the sentencing for Connor. Uh, quite honestly, we found out early on that the death penalty was off the table, but that he was facing up to uh, life in prison and that they were recommending, you know, 40 or 60 years. And to me, to have him sit in a jail cell every day for that length of time couldn't possibly make up for the life that Anne was going to live. It, it made no sense. It, it would have made more sense to send him to college, have him get a good job, and then send me his paycheck every month. So what I really wanted, as Andy said, was a meaningful sentence. And a meaningful sentence was not a lengthy sentence. It was incorporating things that would help Connor become a good person for when he was released from prison, and then for him to do the good deeds of two people for himself and then also for Anne. I wouldn't be talking to you if I had not forgiven Connor, if I had not gone through the restorative justice process. I don't know that I'd be married to my wonderful husband. Um, I don't know what kind of mother I would be to my other two girls. I had to forgive so that I could move on with my life. And I'm grateful for my life that gave me that lesson to know that that's where I needed to be. The family of the offender does not exist in the Florida judicial system. But restorative justice allowed us to participate. It saw Connor as a person of the community. The context of holding the circle as a pre-plea conference allowed the discussion to fit in the existing confines of the Florida judicial system and be unrestricted without consequence to what was discussed. This was especially important to Connor. It freed the discourse to make him deal with the immense reality of what his crime was. It made him state what he did to those he most impacted and then made him hear the enormity of the impact those actions had. Neither the prosecutor nor the defense attorney had encountered restorative justice before. And as we walked out of the jail, Connor's defense attorney turned to me and said, I should have charged you more. It's another indication of how stepping out of the normal proceedings is not simple or easy. In the circle, I said Connor could take the responsibility, but he could not take all the blame. I lost my brother 10 years earlier, right after my dad passed, and I became a very angry man. Unfortunately, my 10-year-old son at the time learned about anger from his dad. 
the ability of the circle to address such deep-seated harm, for me, greatly enhance its redemptive benefit. Another thing the circle highlighted to us was community impact. Our community had lost two young people in this one awful act. From that first night in intensive care to this day, Andy Gromer never has shown me that hatred. The Gromers and the McBrides gained a rapport of two parents that have lost a child. We made a connection between two families devastated by the same tragedy. Kate Gromer said that Connor owed them a debt that he could not repay. This is especially poignant to me because I learned the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Over the years, I've heard the Lord's Prayer said many times, but I had never seen it so profoundly displayed in action as this time. The Gromers showed that their way was to live the words they pray. The usage of the please. It is true, as Julie described, that I was a bit reticent uh, to get involved initially. One of my heart mentors in this work, Howard Zare, pressed upon me to, at a minimum, speak to Julie. Uh, he said she's a wonderful woman, and uh, you can explain to her what your what your uh, concerns are and why you think that this isn't possible. And so, um, in that first conversation with Julie, just was really trying to explain to her it's face-to-face -face dialogue and participatory decision making, in which the people who are most directly impacted come up with the outcome. Uh, of what is uh, what is what will help everyone move forward in a good way, um, and so um, so that to me uh, seemed like an absolute sort of legal impossibility. I couldn't get my brain around how it is that we might actually make this work now that Connor had turned himself in and this was a potential capital crime, uh, and so you know. Um, but as Julie described so beautifully when she explained um, that. Uh, Michael and Andy uh, were meeting weekly um, and that, you know, that she had been tasked in this conversation with the four of them of continuing uh, to search for a restorative justice facilitator. Um, I couldn't keep saying no. <laughs> um, and then when I spoke with the Gromers, it was, um, it seemed inevitable that regardless of what it was that would happen, um, and it was particularly true because my own personal desire was actually to get involved in adult uh, intimate partner and sexual violence work. It's what brought me to the work. Uh, I myself am a survivor and I wish that restorative justice had been available to my family, um, a family in which we experienced uh, intimate uh, domestic violence as well as I experienced sexual abuse. And, um, and so when there were families that were willing to work together like this and were coming from such a good place of good heart, it felt like I had to figure out something <laughs> around this. Um, and so it was uh, through uh, several initial conversations um, and including that one with Allison DeFore where the idea came to use the plea conferencing process the conversation usually happens between two lawyers where they're sort of going back and forth and saying, oh, it should be a first degree murder. Oh, no, it should be, you know, it should be second degree. And these are the facts and da da da. And they just go back and forth. And it honestly doesn't often involve, definitely doesn't involve uh, the survivors, the, the victims' families, but it doesn't um, 
often really involve the person who's caused the harm even weighing in on it. So, um, so we thought, oh, that's, that's privileged and confidential, the conversations that happen there. Uh, that's one of the things I think is most important as a restorative justice facilitator, uh, that we don't create restorative justice processes that brings out information that can later be used in court. And that felt really, really important to me that we don't have really sincere conversations if we're worried that everything we're saying um, is going to result in longer sentences or is, is going to be more about the state deciding what happens instead of the families deciding what happens. And so this, this felt like um, the best thing that we could possibly do under these circumstances. And um, I think the circle has been so beautifully described. I think it's really important to remember Howard Zare's three questions, right? Who was harmed? and what do they need, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs, and how it really just starts with these beautiful and lengthy conversations with Kate and Andy uh, about what did they need now moving forward? What did this process need to look like for them? What mementos of Anne's life should be in the circle? Uh, this is what it means to have the process be driven by those who are most directly impacted, right? What does it mean to be in deep, deep conversation with Connor for many months about what does it mean for him to really remember exactly what happened that day because Andy deserved answers to his questions? Um, and for Connor to do that very, very hard work uh, of digging deeply and uh, for the whole family to do that kind of incredible work. And for, I mean, to my mind, there were many moving parts of the circle, but the two that moved me most deeply um, were when Michael uh, took responsibility uh, for what it is that he had taught uh, his son. And the other part that moved me so deeply was Anne, uh, was, um, sorry, was Kate saying that Connor uh, would have to do the good works of two people because Anne would have done great things with her life. And it wasn't just moving that a mother could hold that, that loss of that particular trajectory, but that, that she could task the young man who took her daughter's life with that. Um, really just a life-changing moment. Uh, so many in that circle, so many. I think it's really important to name that in restorative processes, uh, that to my mind, forgiveness is neither a prerequisite for participation nor uh, an, a required or an expected outcome. Um, that forgiveness comes when it does at the pace at which uh, those who are ready to let go of their own anger, let it go. Um, that being said, um, when restorative justices is well done in a sense, right? I can't imagine a better cauldron for cooking up some forgiveness than restorative justice. Um, and again, in this case, really the forgiveness preceded the restorative justice process. And I think it's really, again, important to let people's individual spiritual and internal journeys towards forgiveness uh, happen in their own way with or without restorative justice. Catholic tradition recognizes and affirms what we just heard so beautifully depicted, that forgiveness is never an obligation, but a creative act of invitation, possibility, and grace. So restorative processes do not expect or require specific expressions of forgiveness. Rather, by tending to the impacts of harm in solidarity with one another, Restorative practices are vessels for God's grace and mercy to shape the labor of justice itself. As we heard so clearly from the Gromers, 
Forgiveness did not preclude their search for justice, but enabled a healing justice that honored the dignity of all. Pope Francis says it this way in his encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Forgiveness does not entail allowing oppressors to keep trampling on their own dignity and that of others, or letting criminals continue their wrongdoing. Those who suffer injustice have to defend strenuously their own rights and those of their family precisely because they must preserve the dignity that they have received as a loving gift from God. This is entirely just. Forgiveness does not forbid justice, but actually demands it. The Gromers and McBride story reveals how this is true and possible. When we expand our moral imagination, we can respond to harm and violence in creative ways that uphold dignity, build a culture of life, and seek healing rather than vengeance. Thank you, Kate, Deacon Andy, Julie, Michael, and Sujatha, for your creativity, courage, and commitment to sharing your story so that it may inspire and encourage others to embrace forgiveness and restorative justice in their own lives and communities. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Encounters with Dignity. Be sure to subscribe to our show from your favorite podcast platform or by visiting catholicsmobilizing.org encounters. For podcast updates and other news from Catholic Mobilizing Network, follow us on social media or sign up for our emails at catholicsmobilizing.org join. Be sure to join us next month when we'll hear from Dr. David Karp and leaders from the Restorative Justice Network of Catholic Campuses about restorative justice in Catholic educational settings. If you feel ready to engage more deeply with restorative justice practices, then check out Paths of Renewed Encounter, CMN's Restorative Justice Engagement Guide for Catholic Communities. Find it at catholicsmobilizing.org paths. Let us close in prayer. God of mercy, you bestow upon every person a dignity that cannot be extinguished, no matter the harm someone has suffered or caused. Ignite in our imaginations more restorative approaches to harm and violence that embody your vision of right relationship. Embolden in us the fire to foster a culture of life. Sustain our pursuit of a reconciling justice that we may model your compassion and mercy with our lives. Amen. Amen.